This is Susan Fisk welcoming you to Pandemic Life, sponsored by Annual Reviews. Uh, I teach at, at Princeton. I'm in the psychology department with a joint appointment at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Affairs. This event is the first of several discussions sponsored by Annual Reviews. We're aiming to explore how social science research sheds light on our experience and also offers practical advice on the personal, social, and cultural challenges that all of us are facing in this COVID-19 pandemic. The series builds on annual reviews articles that our editors have selected and annotated. And the whole range of these articles appears on the annual reviews Pandemic Life website. These events are an interactive version of that collection. The project illustrates annual reviews commitment to bringing the knowledge and wisdom of the world's leading researchers to policy practitioners, policymakers, practitioners, patients, the media, and the general public. Today's topic, can't live with them, can't live without them, is about how we relate to other people whose company we crave but can't have. We're social creatures drawn to others, but other, those others right now are potential disease vectors, and we ourselves are potential carriers of the virus. So this is all our dilemma in this pandemic life, and we're hoping to give you some pointers on how to deal with this dilemma. Our three panelists today are experts in how people balance their need for social community with being safe. I'm going to introduce them briefly, and then we'll cycle back for more detail from each. If the audience, uh, if you have questions, there's a Q&A box, and we invite you to, to type in some questions and we'll be able to pick out some of them um, at strategic moments, I think mostly at the end. So uh, starting with George uh, Slevich from the UCLA Cousins Center for Psychoneuroimmunology. He's an expert on stress, especially how it links to health through psychobiological mechanisms. He is the author of an annual review of clinical psychology article called Social Safety Theory, a biologically based evolutionary perspective on life stress, health, and behavior. Uh, so George, what's your takeaway from this theory and research for people today? Well, thank you, Dr. Fisk, and thank you to Annual Reviews for hosting this important, uh, important uh, meeting. Uh, I think the main takeaway from 50 years of psychological research and what we've described in the social safety theory article is really that the human brain and the immune system are principally designed to keep the body safe from different kinds of threats in the environment. And those threats include obvious things like physical danger, um, other things like social threats that um, uh, people who are angry, conflictual others, arguments, situations like that, social isolation, and also microbial threats, things like viruses. Uh, the take-home message is that our brain and our body is really designed to keep us safe from those different types of threats. And the best case scenario is that we don't have viruses in the, in the environment and we're all socially well-connected and feel safe. Uh, but really our brain and our body moves into a, um, a different stance, a different situation when we're under those threats. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but basically the changes that occur can keep us protected from viruses under some cases, but also can make us feel anxious, depressed, uh, lonely, et cetera. So we can talk a little bit about the ways to deal with that 
to stay socially connected and resilient during this time. Great. Well, that, that'll be really interesting and useful. Uh, Damon Santola comes from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. Uh, he's an expert in social networks and behavior change. He wrote with Jingwen Zhang in the Annual Review of Sociology, an article on social networks and health, new developments in diffusion, online and offline. Damon, what's your message from network dynamics to our audience today? You're mute. Better. Thanks, Susan. Um, the way that we typically think about social networks is as these pipes, these sort of conduits of transmission that carry an infection from one person to the people they know, and then from those people to the people they know and so forth, generating an epidemic. Um, and that's given us sort of a way of thinking about transmission dynamics of viruses like the novel coronavirus. And also it gives us a way of thinking about the spread of information like public health advice. Um, but there's another way of thinking about social networks I'm gonna talk about today, which has to do with what, what networks work for actually changing behavior. For example, um, practicing social distancing, does that spread the same way as the coronavirus or as public health information? And the answer is no, that the first two spread as simple contagions which means that contact is sufficient. But networks aren't just pipes, they're also prisms. They also shape how we see information and how we receive behaviors. And whether we're receptive to something or reject it is often structured uh, by the social network it spreads through. Um, and this is the spreading process of complex contagion, which is much more important for understanding spreading health behaviors. Wow, okay. Well, I can tell we're all gonna learn a lot about this. Um, and then we finally have Sharon Abramowitz, who is a medical anthropologist. She specializes in Ebola, infectious disease, epidemics, community, and data sharing, all very relevant to our issues today. Presently, she's working with UNICEF's Communication for Development, including support for the COVID-19 response. She's the author of an annual review of anthropology article called Epidemics, Especially Ebola. Sharon, what's your takeaway from this review for people in this pandemic? Thanks so much, Susan, and thanks to Annual Reviews for having invited me today. It's a real honor. Um, so I think that the take home message from this article is twofold. First, I think there's something that may seem sort of obvious to us. Um, the emergence of epidemics can force social scientists to occupy extremely different positions and positionalities than they do under ordinary circumstances. And it can really force us to push our own limits in terms of turning our expertise sets into a kind of translational science that advocates on behalf of sort of core human capacity to respond. The second major takeaway from this article is that the global architecture for pandemic response continues to underestimate and arguably undervalue the enormous potentiality of communities in managing their own capabilities to epidemic response, which frankly is how social scientists end up getting pulled in in an advocacy role in order to communicate with sort of the global um, and national uh, epidemic response structures to say, we have communities here, they have their own resources, they have their own approaches, and we need to be engaging with them seriously and knowledgeably and in a supportive capacity in order to focus on the prevention side um, rather than sort of continually trying to chase the epidemic, uh, to chase epidemic curves. Great, wow, okay. Well, this, will, this is gonna be really fruitful, I think. Uh, let's, let's circle back uh, to George and talk about uh, social safety and stress and health. So you're an expert in stress. 
Why is social isolation so stressful for human beings? <laughs> That's a great question. Thank you, Dr. Fisk. I think that social isolation is uh, stressful for people because we're essentially uh, social animals. You know, we, um, we got where we are um, in this uh, beautiful world by banding together in tribes, by cooperating, uh, by working together um, to essentially build things that, you know, most other non-human uh, species uh, could not. Um, and, uh, and we're particularly drawn to other individuals who are friendly, dependable, um, predictable, because those people conferred um, the greatest uh, survival potential and advantage. Um, it, and it's not just about um, being around other people or about um, how many people you're around because it doesn't do your body a whole lot of good if you're around a lot of people who are really angry or fighting all the time or pulling knives out or every time there's a disagreement you get stabbed in the leg, right? Um, so in particular, we are drawn to other people um, who are friendly, uh, social, dependable, kind, um, and who provide us with a sense of uh, physical safety and social safety. Now, of course, when we're isolated, that's one um, instance, evolutionarily speaking, where we were under the most um, danger or risk for potentially being attacked, um, where we wouldn't have a lot of social capital or social resources. And um, many, many years of psychological research has, has told us now that those experiences of social isolation, of loneliness, of social disconnection are a very strong risk factor for uh, uh, men poor mental health, physical health problems, and all-cause mortality. And, uh, and basically why we feel crappy under those circumstances has to do with the way that the brain and the immune system are geared toward keeping us safe. Uh, so for example, the best short-term strategy uh, that your brain can mount when you're under threat is to, is to not ignore the threat, of course, but to make you exquisitely sensitive of the types of physical and social threats that are in the environment. And the brain is, is using a short-term strategy to keep you alive now in the moment, regardless of the potential long-term mental health implications. Uh, so what the brain does is it, uh, you know, it turns up your anxiety signal. Uh, it makes you uh, uh, attentive to the different types of social and physical threats in the environment. And while that will keep you uh, hopefully um, physically and, and socially safe in the moment, it of course has the collateral damage of causing some anxiety, threat sensitivity, hypervigilance, hyper et cetera. And the immune system essentially does the same thing. The immune system, uh, when you move from feeling socially well-connected to feeling socially isolated, ramps up immune system processes that are involved in inflammation. And inflammation is, as many of our viewers will know, is a really critical response to accelerate wound healing and recovery in the case that your body is actually physically damaged. Uh, and that immune system response is essentially uh, important for accelerating wound healing recovery, but also can cause what we call sickness behaviors, which are things like uh, fatigue, social behavior, withdrawal, uh, sleep problems, et cetera, that don't necessarily make us feel good. So, so in the short term, if a person is feeling isolated, they can uh, avoid all this by being in the company of somebody that they're securely attached to and who is reliable. But 
if they don't have that available, then um, presumably they're attentive for other people who might be possible soothing company. Um, but they also, if, they, if the person's unfamiliar, then they have to be vigilant, right? So your, yes, your theory has a lot to do with being vigilant for danger. Yeah, and I, and I think that we, um, it's both about um, focusing on the importance of uh, socially safe relationships and also um, focusing on the potential dangers of not feeling uh, as if we socially belong to a, um, to a group or to a family that provides us a sense of uh, connection, belonging, and social integration. So, so part of your, your work, as I understand it, is saying that some reactions that we have um, in psychoneuroimmunology, ooh, I got the whole thing, um, uh, are adaptive in the short run. So it's important to have like, you know, a stress response in the short run, perhaps, because it mobilizes you. Um, but if it's something that is persistent and never lets up, then it creates damaging levels of chronic inf inflammation, for example. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the idea, which I sort of briefly alluded to, is that the brain and the, brain and the immune system are trying to keep us alive in this moment, um, given um, what it understands the external social environmental circumstances to be. Um, and the reason that it does that is because if the immune system fails to respond to one uh, let's say gash, uh, open wound on your arm. Um, if the immune system says, you know, well, today's Friday afternoon at one o'clock on the East Coast, and you know, I know there's a gashing wound in the left arm, but you know, we'll just relax and see how it goes. You have the potential for um, bacterial viruses uh, to essentially infect the body that could spread, um, that could cause severe um, bodily damage or death if it's left, un left unaddressed. So the brain and the immune system are sort of risk adverse systems, right? They're going to react every time um, there's a perceived danger in the environment and they're going to come on strong, hopefully. Now, uh, I'll just mention the important point is that that response also has to come back to baseline once the threat has dissipated. And I think that's what you're nicely highlighting, which is that um, the ability for that response, that threat response to come on strong, but to dissipate quickly after a threat is gone really has a lot to do with how we think about the environment that we're in and whether or not we perceive, for example, threats when they're not there, uh, whether we ruminate or perseverate around, about situations that are negative but that we're not exposed to in the moment. And I think that's really the silver lining in this whole conversation is that the ability to turn on that threat response really lies um, in our own mind. Um, and we can, the external social environment can't directly uh, turn on the inflammatory response. It can only do that through our minds, which gives us the, really the responsibility and the privilege to, to monitor what it is that we think, uh, whether we're playing a negative tape with negative thoughts and emotions or, 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 or positive uh, tape in our mind to focus on our social belonging and connection. That's really what matters for our immune health in these circumstances. So assuming that there's not a there there, right? I mean, assuming that you're not in a chronically dangerous situation. So that's, 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 that's bad. That's bad. Um, but uh, 
if you're in a situation where it can be interpreted in different ways or you can try to make the best of a bad situation, then you're encouraging people to try to reframe things as challenges rather than overwhelming odds. And yeah, so I'm, I'm, in, I'm encouraging all of us, including myself, to think about um, what's, um, what's the glass half full here. You know, um, we have momentous job losses, we have huge economic disaster going on. Uh, and unfortunately, each one of us can't do a whole lot about that circumstances that requires our politicians and policymakers to step up to try to get us back on track. But the things that we can control are to use this time wisely to reevaluate our circumstances, to focus on connecting with people who we might not have connected with for a while, to rekindle relationships that are meaningful, up, meaningful to us, uh, to log on to online yoga classes, uh, exercise classes, um, to video conference with friends and family uh, from afar, and to focus on the parts of this um, situation that we can control um, and to make the best out of um, those circumstances. And I'll just say one last thing, which is that we've talked a lot about over the past month of this idea of social distancing. And I really think that that's um, a misguided term in the sense that it, 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 it highlights to us the, the idea or it suggests the idea that really we need to uh, break our social ties in order to keep ourselves physically safe from the environment. And as my colleague at Stanford and others have said, we really need to change, um, uh, my colleague Jamil Zaki at Stanford and others have said, we really need to change that conversation away from social distancing and toward um, physical distancing with distant socializing. The idea that's what necessary, what's most necessary to keep us physically safe is physical distance from other people, but what's most critical for keeping us socially safe and resilient is distant socializing, whether it be with uh, individuals who we love, care about, if it's online, as I said, yoga classes, fitness classes, et cetera, whatever it is that mounts a real sense of social safety and connection uh, with physical distance, I think is really what's most important here. Well, that's really helpful um, for promoting social belonging and res resilience, but still being aware of the um, harm from exposure to the pet virus. Um, let's focus even more on promoting sociality. Uh, Damon Santola, um, tell us, since you're an expert on social networks and health, um, what are networks good for and not so good for? Yeah, I, I think it's useful to explain a little bit more what I meant when I was saying that networks are prisms, um, particularly when we think about the spread of public health information. I'm going to use the term social distancing, although I appreciate what George said about physical distancing. I think that's a useful distinction. Um, but to stick with what we've been seeing in the news for the last month and to kind of think about how impactful it's been um, as public health advice and actually, you know, reducing the spread of the virus. Um, the advice came out fairly quickly afterwards and you would see signs, obviously news broadcasts, but even in public parks, right, people were advertising it with big billboards. Um, but what you would notice looking out your window, at least here in Philadelphia, is that there were droves of people walking along the sidewalk at the same time. And there's a large park in front of our house and people were picnicking and, and talking to their neighbors. Um, and so what you saw is a really big disconnect between the fact that everyone had heard the term social distancing within a few days, the information spread virally, um, but the practice hadn't. And that disconnect is the sort of meaningfulness of talking about the difference between pipes, which spread the information very quickly, 
and the way that we interpret and act on that information. One of the key things with public health advice is it often um, requires a certain amount of legitimacy. So think about all of your colleagues at work um, showing up for a meeting. And if you as an individual say, look, I've heard this advice about social distancing, I'm not gonna show up to the meeting. Well, you're gonna be judged if all of your colleagues actually show up for the meeting. And so it's not just a matter of you making a good decision because you you know, have relevant public health information. It's a matter of that decision being accepted by your peers and you knowing that decision is accepted by your peers. So this kind of advice requires a bit of coordination. Um, and what this means that sort of ironically is that social distancing requires social reinforcement. Um, people need other peers to say, yeah, I'm not gonna show up to that meeting and it needs to be acceptable. And for many of us who are faculty, um, you know, teaching was another thing that was during that transition, a lot of people were teaching this term and it was a question whether you should show up and teach. Um, and again, that something like a virus can spread very easily from one person to another. But the decision not to show up to your class is evaluated against the fact of whether everyone in your class is also going to show up and whether your colleagues are going to keep teaching their classes and the same for running lab meetings. So all of this needs to be coordinated socially so everyone could kind of agree what was acceptable behavior. And that process of coordinating on what's acceptable socially is the process of complex contagion of behavior spreading through social networks, which looks very different than information or viruses spreading. And it means that when we think about spreading public health advice, whether we call it social distancing or physical distancing, the advice needs to take into account the way in which people are looking for legitimacy and looking for coordination before they adopt this kind of behavior themselves. So the pathogens spread easily through networks and the norms spread easily through networks. I mean, people's impressions of what other people think is the right thing to do. But, um, but they're more complex kinds of behavioral transmission. Yeah, and actually the way that network scientists talk about it, there's sort of two very common ways of thinking about networks. The, the common way that epidemiologists and network science talk about it is from an objective perspective, where you look at the underlying graph, which is literally a series of lines connecting people to other people, and you can draw out the path of a pathogen through a population. You can also draw out the path of a behavior change through a population. Um, but the thing is, when you look at that graph, the the sort of trajectory of the, or the number of steps that a, a contagion will take looks very different than the path through the network that a behavior change will take. And so what that means is that the channels that are most effective for one kind of spreading are different from the channels that are effective for another kind of spreading. And a, a good example of this is something like the opinion leader or the influencer. Um, when we think about the spread of uh, viruses, obviously someone who has lots and lots of social connections and is very active and engaged in going to meetings and events is someone who if they become infected becomes a vector for infecting lots and lots of other people and this is the sort of origin of the concept of the influencer it comes from epidemiology so the question is well does that also work for spreading the kind of behavior change we'd like to see when people are engaged in this sort of social distancing? And the answer is no. And the reason is because that person is also looking at all of the other people who are not engaged in social distancing. And so these are referred to as countervailing influences. These are people who just by their inaction, just by engaging in sort of normal practices, are reinforcing the idea that it's not really acceptable to engage in the social distancing practice. And so I actually would refer to that as norms. And I would say that those kinds of coordination processes are social norms, they do spread through social networks, but effective public health requires sort of 
strategizing on how to generate social reinforcement among people's peers rather than just disseminate information. And that strategy okay. is some, yeah. So, so I want to influence my neighborhood right. to, you know, to engage in sensible anti-epidemic behavior. Um, how, what can I do as, so a, the, as a regular person? Yeah, the effective strategies for doing this have to do with generating what's effectively called a critical mass, right? You get enough people, a kind of coalition of people to agree that they're going to change their behavior. So think about enough teachers at a university agreeing that they're not going to show up and teach classes because this is dangerous and they all kind of coordinate on an online platform for teaching. That then presents a kind of social reinforcement for all of the other teachers who are thinking about whether they should go in or whether they should, should um, stay home and use the online platform. And so essentially it's coalition building within a community that generates what is in essence a tipping point effect where if enough people do it, then it shifts the norm for everybody else. So if I want the neighborhood all to be wearing face masks, I should recruit a critical mass of people to walk up and down the street alone <laughs> wearing face masks. Yeah, and um, even more interestingly, if you think about social distancing, that's a very hard one to generate social reinforcement for, because <laughs> what, what does it mean to reinforce social distancing? And this is where I think some of the online technologies for doing public health have become, um, they've kind of come to the foreground as remarkably useful things. Um, we all had these experiences when we sort of see a link on email, and I one I think related kind of change we've seen is that people now add to their email signature um, pronouns that they think are appropriate for referring to themselves, right? He, his, him, and so forth. Um, and that's a kind of a social norm that's spreading through email networks. Um, people don't really talk about that decision to do it, but as you see enough emails reflecting that change, it becomes expected that you'll reflect it as well. And so I think that we'll start to see that kind of thing on Twitter and on Facebook and so forth, where people can sort of signal in a public way that they're engaging in social distancing. And a number of the contagions that we've seen spread over social media that have these kind of surprising social aspects to them where people support a movement. The, a good example is one to support the, um, um, the, the Supreme Court's hearing for same-sex marriage. And this was something that spread through Facebook when people changed their, the logo on, or the sort of profile page to include the sort of equal sign. This contagion spread to like 3 million people in a, in a week. It was a massive contagion, but interestingly, it didn't spread like a virus. It spread through these sort of reinforcing networks because there was a bit of social risk with associating yourself with that movement. And if people had enough sort of reinforcement in their online community, then they would change their profile as well. In fact, if they got enough social reinforcement, it would be conspicuous that they didn't change their profile. And that's when norms start to shift. And that's what you would see with face masks and with social distancing as well. If enough other people are doing it and you're not, then all of a sudden the burden is on you to conform. Um, and so social media technologies become a really interesting uh, vehicle for signaling these kinds of public health behavior changes in situations where part of what we're trying to do is reduce physical um, interactions. So I have one last question for you. You know, using networks in these ways highlights a feature of most people's networks, which is that they hang out with other people like themselves. Right. So there's stratification, there's homophily, which are basically all fancy ways of saying people hang out with people like themselves. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
and your question so is that, how that it, how would it spread from one group to another group if everyone's sort of in their own group yeah i mean there you know echo chambers can be soothing right because everything's familiar and you're sharing the network with people who are predictable and you know familiar but um how do you get people out of the rut yeah so one of the effective strategies we've used so far is we've built online communities between groups that historically are invested in echo chambers so the classic one is democrats and republicans although they're you know the degree to which they're actually socially isolated is unclear but um it's it stands as kind of a paradigm of what we think about as echo chambers and it turns out that if you construct the right kinds of sort of bridging ties between these two groups which is these are referred to as wide bridges which allow for this kind of social reinforcement of opinions across groups um, it's strikingly effective in allowing each group the republicans and the democrats to sort of come to a mutual understanding of what they think is um, the right opinion or the right view or an acceptable behavior and so uh, in, in this context, this was, I think you saw this, this was the PNAS article, but this was looking at opinions about climate change, where we took two groups that were initially highly polarized on whether or not uh, Arctic sea ice was actually decreasing. And we showed that by connecting them in the right way and having them interact in a sequence of exchanges, um, opinions in both groups became more accurate and also the polarization between the groups disappeared. Interestingly, a number of different strategies for connecting them failed. So, it's not just a matter of having people interact, which, which can actually worsen polarization. Um, but if they interact in the right kind of network, and this goes back to sort of the pattern of, of connections that really reinforce the spread of, of a new behavior um, or a complex contagion, network strategies online can be very effective for bridging across echo, uh, echo chambers or bridging across diverse groups with initially different opinions um, and generating a sort of sense of social consensus across them. Um, and that kind of strategy we've also deployed in public health most recently looking at smokers and non-smokers and creating these kinds of bridging groups uh, also to spread changes um, in viewpoints about the safety risks of smoking. Um, and so my view is that this strategy works um, in many different domains. Um, and we're also looking at it in the case of implicit bias and other sorts of um, issues relating to whether or not people perceive difference or whether or not people sort of make medical decisions. And we're talking here about clinicians and um, mostly cardiologists making decisions about patients based on race and gender but remarkably putting people into these kinds of network structures also changes implicit bias and increases their receptivity to um, different patient conditions and so people who would normally be excluded from mainstream healthcare wind up being included in health mainstream healthcare as a result of these kinds of interactions um, which suggests yeah. that online networks can be equally effective mm -hmm. as face-to-face -face networks for changing these kinds of social norms Wow, the power of networks. Um, exactly. And uh, let's turn to the power of uh, community and of people who really understand community. Uh, so Sharon, um, you've been involved in dealing with communities' responses to an even deadlier e epidemic, uh, Ebola, which was in fact prevented from becoming a global pandemic. Um, and you, uh, during the West Africa Ebola e epidemic, and since then you've been um, looking at how anthropologists in particular um, respond to epidemics, what are some of the roles that they play? So I think that what we need to do um, is to sort of set the table back to 2014. And what we see in 2014 is a sort of real-time human experiment in which there were massive global efforts to try to promote, uh, promote um, anti-Ebola transmission behavior change in West Africa 
and they were um, massively failing, right? Um, they were not working from sort of a, a foundation of social pragmatics that was really connected to kind of primary human experience. And in many cases, some of the steps and some of the recommendations that were being taken um, were flying in the face of what local communities found to be feasible, found to be acceptable, and even found to be humane. So um, what I just want to give you a, a few examples um, because I think that it's instructive also for the current COVID-19 context. Um, in Monrovia, for example, during um, August of, during uh, actually July and August of 2014, there was a massive campaign to encourage people to engage in a no touch policy, right? Um, do not touch anyone in any way, shape or form. Now, um, Monrovia, Liberia is a deeply resource constrained environment and anybody who vaguely falls into the category of able-bodied adult has direct physical care and responsibility for someone who cannot take care of themselves. That can include a child, it can include an elderly person, it can include a family member with a disability, right? And um, there was evidence showing that people were trying the no-touch policy, but they were abandoning it within a matter of days because the consequences of implementing a no-touch policy were fundamentally inhumane. They couldn't provide primary physical bodily care to the people that they were directly responsible for. And in many cases, there was an enormous amount of grief and protest over the fact that they were effectively being asked to allow their loved ones to die in front of them or to fall into you know, um, all different kinds of sort of physical abandonment and distress. Right? It was a policy, um, it was a behavior change policy that no matter um, how much pressure you applied was never going to work because it was fundamentally unacceptable to the people who were being asked to implement it. Now, following from that, what you saw was an engagement by the global community with local communities that was starting from a place that assumed that what was needed was behavior change that failure to implement behavior change constituted community-based resistance and that resistance was being driven out of fear, right? That was sort of like the linear pathway that uh, the framing of behavior change communication was following, okay? Um, and anthropologists, um, many of whom had direct experience in the West Africa region, particularly um, in Senegal, Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone, really um, revolted ultimately and formed a, a global network of advocacy in order to try to inform what was widely perceived as sort of a wrongheaded and inhumane policy response. Um, and uh, following on Damon's comments, I mean, we, we formed social media networks and we started um, you know, engaging on a voluntary basis and sometimes in a more formal structured way to try to um, provide direct inputs about what local conditions were in order to, to make the response smarter, more agile and more resistant and more capable of engaging with, with the realities on the ground. Um, we also need to understand, and I think that this is important, that anthropologists were um, responding to um, epidemic response infrastructures that were, um, that were failing local populations, right? So for example, um, people, um, much like the testing environment in some countries right now, um, people were being asked to call into hotlines to report um, sickness among themselves or relatives and um, they would call multiple times, they were expending funding in order, they were spending money in order to call, and then um, there would be nobody at the other end of the hotline to answer the phone, mm -hmm. or days would go by without an ambulance coming by to pick up a family member who had died, right? Um, these were deeply, deeply, deeply distressing experiences, and it became very, very clear that there needed to be a fundamental pivot to how we understood how people responded to these kinds of environments, right? 
we needed to shift from a place where we were presuming that people were operating from a place of fear. And we needed to understand that people were operating from a space of the entire you know, frame of the, of the human condition. The people were you know, being brave. They were being altruistic. They were trying to be pro-social. They were trying out new behaviors and they were rejecting the ones that were infeasible. And the long-term consequences of that is that there's been a pivot to a meaningful understanding, or at least it's in progress, but there's a pivot to a meaningful understanding that when communities aren't accepting behavior change, it's not just because they're afraid and they're refusing and they're resistant, right? We've, um, we've, we've made significant progress in helping the global community understand that when we see reluctance, refusal, resistance, or rejection of prescribed measures, there's often, frankly, a damn good reason why, right? Um, and so with that, you know, to answer your question, we've seen a growing institutionalization of the social sciences in epidemic response space because social science perspectives and particularly anthropological perspectives have proven to be extremely valuable from an advocacy perspective, from an operational perspective, and from a policy perspective in giving a meaningful, authentic understanding of how it is that people are going to respond to whatever situations are being put into front of them in really extreme conditions. Um, and so, I mean, I can kind of chart how that growing institutionalization has developed, but I think that that might not be exactly, opti like exactly optimal right now. Well, I think that's really interesting, you know, um, because the COVID um, pandemic started in China, I have a stepson who's living and working in China and I was getting a blow by blow account of people being under, you know, apartment lockdown. And I thought, oh, that's China, right? That'll never happen here. And, you know, I was so wrong, so completely wrong. It wasn't a cultural thing, mostly, because people here have been doing the same thing and doing it in response to um, less centralized directives, but more localized directives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's an example of how a know-it-all <laughs> <laughs> Social scientists can be totally wrong. Um, but so what about the, you know, vast numbers of people who might be listening to us who are not social scientists? How can they leverage the kinds of principles that you're talking about in, um, you know, being constructive in the current situation? So, I mean, I want to kind of pick up on, I want to pick up on actually the comment that you just made about what happened in China versus what happened here, right? And I think that fundamentally, one of the things that anthropologists tend to address very directly is sort of the question of where is the locus of control, right? Who is mm -hmm. making decisions about what kind, of paper, what kind of changes to take on and things like that? And I think that one of the things that we tend to underestimate in our current environment is the fact that Yes, um, like I'm, I'm here in Brookline, Massachusetts right now. I look outside my window. I can walk outside my door without a face mask, walk into any building I want, and no one's going to stop me. But for weeks and weeks, I've chosen not to do so, right? Um, we tend to um, overlook the fact that like on a day-to-day -day basis, on a micro-social basis, the locus of control fundamentally sits with us, except for in circumstances in which the locus of control is taken away from us. And to the extent that we can advocate for establishing conditions in which the locus of control in responding to epidemics sits with individuals, it does the most to ensure that people are being given the opportunity to respond to epidemics and to participate in prevention measures and caregiving measures and um, you know, help-seeking measures in ways that preserve human dignity, right? 
Um, I kind of want to step, I also just kind of want to pivot a little bit on your question to sort of highlight a lot of people in our audience who are academics, right? And I think that one of the things that we need to do is we need to be thinking more about how it is that we take the areas of expertise that we have and we, and we start um, positioning it for translational science, right? How do we turn our knowledge and our expertise into um, 10 point bullets called what you as a blank can do in the current COVID-19 response, right? Insights from blah, 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 right? And how do we turn these into actionable principles? Because I think that that's a really big stumbling block for, um, for the public health sector, for government officials, even for the private sector in terms of onboarding some of our, our knowledge and our insights and wisdom into operational practice. And so that's a really, really hard thing to do. And I think that it's, it's a really productive area for moving forward, um, you know, sort of in the academic community. So, so we should listen to communities, pay attention to individual control. George said, look at the glass half full. Uh, Damon, what would you bring in from communications um, and networks uh, to advise regular people what they can do to leverage knowledge for constructive yeah. right yeah i think that the um the example of the face max is a good one because what you tend to see now is a bit of um crowd mediated social control which is people are tending to respond to and like in english we're, we're now referred to as covid shaming or coronavirus shaming um where if you know there's someone out without a mask um, and you know, coughing in a public space, people feel comfortable saying something to that person, um, which wouldn't have been true a month ago, right? And partly the reason why you feel comfortable saying it is there's enough other people wearing face masks that you know that people are thinking the same thing you're thinking. And when we think about these kinds of changes, they really are changes in social norms. And part of what Sharon's bringing up is that one of the reasons why a lot of public health inter interventions are difficult is because they inadvertently um, contradict or run against social norms that are kind of implicit within, within our culture, but also within other cultures. Um, and this has made public health campaigns, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, like Ebola um, interventions, but also like HIV interventions, particularly difficult. Um, and so one of the strategies that's been really effective is to take a step back and ask about what the existing norms are and why the sort of interventions are being um, essentially rejected. I mean, I don't know if you want to use that language, but they're, they're not accepted because they basically contradict things that people believe in culturally. And so one question is, well, how can you reframe that experience socially so that it becomes more acceptable among your peers? Um, and so when we think about something like face masks, if one person's wearing a face mask is, is extremely uncomfortable, but the more people wearing them, the more comfortable it is. And the more, like I was saying before, the more the people who don't wear them stand out and the more comfortable we feel censoring them. And that's really a shift in social norms. And so the strategy I think is to communicate in a very explicit way using social media channels to peers and colleagues that these are norms that you're adopting that you're not gonna show up for a meeting. I mean, we're all not showing up for meetings now, but you can think about it a month ago or six weeks ago when you could have signaled to people that you're not showing up for meetings and this is an intentional decision to prevent the spread of the disease. And that the more people who signal that, the clearer the message is that that new behavior is acceptable. And so for, particularly for behaviors like social distancing that are difficult to observe, 
creating observability for those behaviors creates a social reinforcement that can shift the social norm. And in all, in all of these behaviors, to what extent is it important to go beyond the individual and to say, I'm not sick myself and I don't expect to get sick. Maybe I have immune immunity, I think. Right. The delusional idea that I've built up immunity. Right. Um, but I'm doing it for other people. I mean, so, I mean, there's a limit to the sort of individualistic approach, I think. Anybody have a comment? So I think that this moves us into um, a really interesting space that um, all of us are uncomfortable in, right? And including public health experts. Right now, um, when we're operating in spaces of uncertainty, like, you know, how long, for example, are you contagious after you've had the virus, right? We just don't know. Um, how long can, can transmission continue? Um, what do you do if you suspect that you had the virus, you never got tested, and now you still don't have access to a test because you're not show currently showing symptoms, right? Um, what are the implications of that for the people in your immediate environment? These are all questions that pertain directly to what you're talking about. Um, you know, what, what do we do about um, choosing paths for our behaviors in spaces of significant uncertainty that isn't being resolved as quickly as people would like by the scientific establishment, right? Um, one of the problems that we're looking at here is that like we need to be really upfront about what it is that we do know, what it is that we don't know. We need to tell the truth. And then we need to start making some best guesses, right? That um, take into account social norms, that take into account, um, you know, uh, that take into account fundamental issues around, you know, risk and security and protection, and also take into account basic considerations about rights, right? Um, and um, balancing that requires more sophisticated conversa conversations than the current, you know, um, epidemic response establishment is really capable of having, but kind of ignores the fact that those conversations are exactly what people are talking about in their households every day, you know, and is, you know, very slowly kind of creating um, an enormous amount of pressure against a dam that could ultimately overflow if people don't start getting, you know, some smart, thoughtful, connected to humans, like, you know, best guess guidances. Um, we need to we need to be willing to take that next step and and provide any support that we can in doing so. Um, so, yeah. Well, it all seems kind of daunting to me. Um, I'm I'm thinking about uh, sitting at home and reframing all this. <laughs> um, so. Uh, George, what would you um, suggest to people about the balance that they have to strike between trying to save the world and trying to save themselves? And um, what's sort of, you know, what would add to stress? Well, I think just to piggyback on what you just, what you just mentioned, um, you know, there's this idea right now that um, we really need to focus on socially connecting with people who mean a lot to us, but also focusing on a sense of common humanity and connection with all people around the world. I mean, this is really one um, unfortunate instance where we're all sort of being threatened by the same thing at the same time. That's the downside. The upside is that we're experiencing a collective sense of shared experience, all experiencing um, the same type of uncertainty, a similar type of anxiety, some, some of us more than others, depending on whether we're in a, in a hot zone or not. 
Uh, but one thing we can do is to flip that into uh, a pro-social pro act, essentially, whereby um, physically distancing ourselves and keeping ourselves at safe is, is essentially one of the most noble things that we can do, not only to keep ourselves safe, but to keep our family members safe and to keep other people's family members safe who might be immunocompromised or otherwise vulnerable. So it's, uh, it's sort of a trick of the mind to say that the most important and beneficial thing we can do for ourselves, our family members, and other people is to really practice appropriate physical distancing and keep ourselves at home and safe, but not to free, reframe that in, uh, away from a sense of social isolation and toward a, toward a sense of uh, common humanity and connection with all other beings as a way to keep us collectively healthy. Yeah, I've been struck by that too, by the extent to which, you know, people in other countries who I happen to know are writing to me and saying, are you okay? And can we send you masks? <laughs> yeah, and I would say that uh, if you have the inkling to do that, now is the time to turn that inkling in behavior and to hop on your WhatsApp or Facebook or Gmail or whatever it is and to send that message now, to pick up the phone now, to make that connection now. Mm -hmm. Uh, to strengthen that collective resilience that we all need. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful note to for us to end on. Um, you're here. Um, so uh, we haven't um, time, I'm afraid, to go into Q&A, but uh, I hope the discussion's been helpful and um, annual reviews is going to follow up with people who registered for the event. Um, there's a recording of this, uh, which will be available to people. Um, and also they'll talk to you about future um, pandemic life events. Uh, I happen to know that next week, not Friday, but Thursday, uh, there'll be a discussion of the genetics of immunology. Um, so some people are more potentially vulnerable to COVID having a more severe case than others. Um, and there'll be a discussion about that and explanation of how that works and what it might mean for future uh, immune campaigns. Um, so I want to thank the, uh, the panelists very much for your writing and for your uh, being here today. And I want to recommend the collection of annual reviews articles that are on the website. Uh, I've had a look at some of them and it's, they're really um, impressive, including the present company. So thank you very much. And this is Pandemic Life signing off. <laughs>